Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode, I, we take a look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick's short story or part of a novel and uh, go into some of the analysis and some of the ideas that these works inspire in us and the th- we don't talk about some of the things that Philip Dick himself may have had in mind when he wrote them. In this episode, we'll be looking at The Golden Man. Now, The Golden Man was published in If in April 1954. Dick originally gave the story the name The God Who Runs, which in some ways is a little bit closer to the themes that he's trying to get at. Um, it is his a major post-human story, um, perhaps even his first story to really explore post-humanism in detail. And let me talk about what I mean by post-humanism. You know, it has nothing to do really with post-modernism, although, there, you know, some analysts may find some overlaps in the, in the concepts. Post-humanism, I'm using strictly as a, as a biological concept when I talk about them. Um, now, mutants can, I guess, fall into two groups. One a group of, well, mutants are easy to understand, right? Mutants are people who physical or mental or whatever, some characteristics of theirs change through evolution, through changing environments or whatever. That's very common in science fiction, of course. Now you have two types of mutants. You've got mutants who just, they change a little bit, but it doesn't change their essential humanity in any, any way, right? And I think this is kind of what you get out of, of a lot of like the X-Men storylines, right? Like they're changed, they're enhanced, they have these abilities, but their emotions, their feelings, their look at the world, their their motives are still mostly human. At least that's in the films. I, I haven't really read the comics. But, you know, in a lot of mutant stories, you have this kind of theme. Like, although they're mutated, they're, they're still human, right? There's not, you know, they're still one of us. They're still part of a family, even if they look different or whatever. So imagine someone maybe with, like, three eyes or, or four arms or something, right? They're, that doesn't change who, who they are. The post-human, though, is someone who... A creature that you know that mutated from humanity but through those mutations their fundamental character has changed they've become something beyond humanity right so if you say someone who gets the ability to let's say fly that could be just a mutation and no big deal right they're still a human in every way but if you think about it, you know, being able to fly would change your perspective on so many things that it might be, it's hard to actually understand that how you could really, you know, still grasp humanity, right? Or someone who maybe adapts a way they never has to die, right? You know, the, and the fact that death is a fundamental human experience, if someone can overcome death through mutation, they lose some grasp, grasp of, of their humanity and therefore at that point become a post-human, right? I think, I think many of Dick's mutants are really in the post-human category, right? If it's the precogs in Minority Report, uh, certainly it's the case in here in The Golden Man, uh, in the story of the world of talent, you have post-humans. People who are, through their mutation, become very separate from humanity in a way. Maybe they have different goals and ambitions and, and dreams, and they see their role on the planet differently. Or maybe they just really can't communicate anymore with with other with regular you know regular humans now dick's not entirely consistent about this but especially in stories like the golden man you really have this as the main point that the mutant is no longer loses touch with with their humanity right i I think the x-files did this in a few episodes like there's that one episode squeeze where the guy can can contort and fit into these weird places 
Right. And the, one of the themes of that episode is because he has to consume on, I think it was human livers or something, he really can't be a human, right? He can't be humanized in any way. And the storytellers in that episode don't attempt to do that. Anyway, that's that's just a bit of a background of what I, I'm kind of talking about when I say post-human. I'm talking about someone who's not just a mutant, but someone whose mutations have separated them from, from humanity. Now, we can debate how much mutation it would take to get to that point, right? Uh, like a third arm. You know, there's plenty of, you know, people with genetic abnormalities that we still consider fully human. So we haven't really run into anyone with that, you know, who's really changed their their fundamental humanity because of their their mutation. But who knows what will happen in in the future. And as we actually start to interact with different species that that may or may not evolve, although I have, you know, that'll be thousands of years, if ever. Maybe a big environmental change, right? We looked at a story before called The Planet for Transients in which a nuclear war created a surface full of post-humans, but all the humans had to kind of live underground. Anyways, um, into the story. This can be found now in Second Variety and other classic stories, which is the third volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick. And he actually talks about this story a little bit. So let's look at what Dick said about the Golden Man first. So this is a rather long description, but he said, In the early 50s, much American science fiction dealt with human mutants and their glorious superpowers and super faculties by which they would presently lead mankind to higher states of existence, a sort of promised land. John W. Campbell, editor of Analog, demanded that the stories he bought deal with such wonderful mutants. He also insisted that the mutants always be shown as one, good, and two, firmly in charge. When I wrote The Golden Man, I intended to show that one, the mutant might not be good, at least not good for the rest of mankind, for us ordinaries, and two, not in charge, but snipping at us at, as a bandit would a feral mutant who potentially would do us more harm than good. This was specifically the view of psych- psionic mutants that Campbell loathed, the idea of, in fiction that he refused to publish. So my story appeared in If. The writer, we sci-fi writers of the 50s liked If because it had high-quality paper and illustrations. Okay, blah, blah, blah. he talks about the publication of it. Um, but I think that gets down to it is he, he's trying to present the mutant as a threat, a not very sympathetic character. Uh, now, one more piece of business to get out of the way. This has been adapted into uh, a story uh, or into a film called Next. At least they say it's based on uh, the Golden Man, but I don't see much parallel. In fact, I've, I've only kind of read the summary. So let, let's take a quick look at it. So I won't read the full Wikipedia summary of it, but it's just, just the brief one that comes before the main, uh, just in the introduction. Quote, the film tells the story of Chris Johnson, a small-time magician based in Las Vegas who has limited clairvoyance. His ability allows him to see the very immediate future. His gift makes him a target not only of highly motivated but heavily armed groups of terrorists, but also wanted by the FBI to help fight them. Help them fight them, end quote. Obviously nothing to do with this story, except that you have kind of government agency you know, interacting in some way with, with post-humans, with mutants. Um, so, yeah, not much more to say about this this movie, I think. It doesn't seem to be very good. Uh, and not in, by any stretch of our imaginations of a real adaptation of, of the story. It actually sounds to have a little bit more in common with the world Jones made, right, and the idea of seeing in the future. Now, in the world Jones made, someone, the guy can see it had one year but no more. So this allows him to have enough omniscience into the future to be able to um, c- 
control short-term events, but he can't see the long-term consequences of the events he, un, he, he lays out. So he's able to seize power, but he's not able to know his ultimate downfall. So it's actually a thought experiment on Hitler, right? So why did Hitler make these seemingly irrational choices, right? Well, yeah, the invasion of Russia was a good idea for a year or so, right? And then it collapsed. So if someone were able to see in the future, if Hitler could have seen into the future for one year, he may have predicted victory in, in Russia, right? But had he been able to see had three or four years, you know, it would have been a, a different situation. So that's what he's doing in the world Jones mates. But we'll talk about that actually pretty shortly. I, I know it's out of chronological order to jump into another novel now, but, you know, I, I think breaking free of these stories and, and looking at one of the other early novels might be a good idea. So I'm planning to do that pretty quickly. All right, um, into the golden man. So the plot summary. Um, so we have a salesman. He asks the people at a diner about the town he's in. And the town is called Walnut Creek. He shows the man next to him a photo of a woman with, with eight breasts. The man ignores it in disgust, but the farmer takes a little bit more interest. And they discuss the local Denver DCA camp. And this is where mutants are sent until they're euthanized. So we have a government that's tracking down, locating mutants. And apparently this woman with eight breasts is a mutant they're looking for. And then they're sent to these essentially camps where they're put to death. They discuss some of the mutants that have been discovered in recent years. One colony was hiding out in coal mines for 40 years. Another can control mines. These various mutants emerged on Earth after the war. Part of the reconstruction plans after the war has been to seek out and destroy these mutants, and the government has proved very effective in their task. The salesman asks if there's any mutant ne nearby, and they don't really answer his questions, uh, but he finally asks directions to his destination, which is the Johnson Farm. So we learn that this policeman, this, well, kind of posing as, as a salesman, but he's really working for the government. You know, he's looking for this particular farm, right? He's, he's, you know, maybe this woman with eight breasts is also on his agenda, but his main goal is this Johnson farm. Now, we, we start out here with the story of, of kind of government repression of a, of a subculture of mutants. And usually when this is done today in, in science fiction, we want to present kind of the exploited, oppressed minority. This, this is a pretty common theme. And in fact, in The Hoodmaker, the episode in Philip K. Dick Electric Dreams, they change this aspect of the story. And we haven't done The Hoodmaker yet. But um, in there, though, the mutants are also a threat and you're almost siding with the government to repress them. In this case, it starts out like almost you get this imagery of, of almost like the Nazi agent seeking out where the Jews are hiding. Right. And sending them to camps. And anyone listening to this in the late in the mid 1950s would obviously kind of think about the Holocaust. And certainly we reading now would, would even more, I think. There's a, to a degree we're more conscious of the Holocaust now than maybe even in the in the 50s. It's a bigger part of I think our cultural uh, understanding of governments and states and war. So th the point being is that you start out sympathizing for the mutants actually. So then we jump to a different location. Uh, Nat Johnson is watching his children play. So this is the Johnson farm, the Johnson of the Johnson farm. He's watching his children play, and one of the children is Chris, who's a feral mutant with golden skin and and hair. He never plays with the others and he stands aloof from the group. And when he does play, he uses his strength and speed to outshine the ch children. So obviously the kids don't want to play with him too much because he's always going to win any game he plays at. And suddenly Chris darts out of sight. This quote unquote salesman from the diner arrives in his 1978 Buick, so sometime in the future, claiming to be the owner of the Pacific Del Development Corporation. 
He's asking for directions to some land that he has purchased. Johnson tells him, after looking at the deed, that the land is 50 miles away. He asks for a drink of, drink of water. Johnson begins to prepare it and comforts his daughter that the man will soon be gone. So at this point in the story, we still have this feeling of this oppressive government agent interfering with family life, snooping around, asking questions, being you know suspicious, and no one really trusts him. And we even have the child just kind of afraid that this man is here. On his way inside, remember, never do this. Don't invite police into your house. Um, talk to them outside if you have to. But on his way inside, Baines snoops around the house. And after Baines... Well, Johnson sort of tries to attack Baines and tries to beat him up. And, and Baines stops the attack and he reveals that he's from the DCA and he places Johnson under arrest. Cars drive up on the dirt road and enter, they enter the farmhouse and block off the exits to the farm. Johnson tells Bain that the mutant has run away and that he had knowledge that this was going to happen. So he's somehow maybe a precog. He can, he can see the future. Baines tells him that he will study his powers and decide whether or not to euthanize the mutant. This, this is the, I guess, the concession to this family saying, well, we might not kill him. Now, it seems that all these mutants eventually do get euthanized in these camps, but maybe there's this facade that they're, you know, they're looked at. Are they a real threat? Is it the kind of mutation that's going to fundamentally be a threat to humanity before they're, they're killed? So that's what, that's what he's told. Johnson's daughter, um, tells him that Chris, this mutant, is often out on his own, but also that he's beautiful, quote, God come down to earth. And a few minutes later, Chris surrenders himself to Baines. He shows up and surrenders himself. They take him to the lab while Baines warns that this mutant is a unique challenge, not like the, not the woman with five, eight breasts. It's a, it's a bigger challenge. So jump to a new setting. Baines and an agent are at the lab and they want to they study Chris for 40 hours before deciding on his fate. Now, Chris, this mutant, has no language. He's also fully matured by age 13. And they're amazed that they were able to keep this, this mutant secret for so long. Now, the first test they do is to try to shoot him. Um, five bullet, bullets are shot at Chris's back, but they're all evaded in a blur of movement. So he's very quick and is able to almost predict this threat. This strongly suggests that his power is... is, is not really telepathy since the shots were random. So if it was telepathy, maybe they could, this was gonna breathe that I'm gonna be shot, so I gotta move out of the way. But no, these were random bullet shots. So it's more of a precognition ability. So they think maybe it's psychokinetics, maybe they're able to move the bullets. Baines and the lab worker Anita discuss the problems of mutants like Chris. If a mutant, a mutant emerges that is homo superior, not like an ordinary, but actually not just a mutant, but someone who's homo superior, superior to all their humans. They will eventually overtake homo sapiens in, you know, in the same way that homo sapiens replaced it, replaced Neanderthals. Now, I don't know when the science on the Neanderthals and the relationship between Neanderthals and humans was was known. I, I do know that until recently, the common thesis was essentially that the Neanderthals were a thriving hominid species uh, throughout much of the Mediterranean world, and then they were replaced by Homo sapiens, who were superior in some ways. But there's also new theories that you know they were a lot closer to humanity, to Homo sapiens, than we previously realized, and there's probably a lot of interbreeding and intermarriage. Um, now, this argument is is a little bit 
interesting. I, I do know that, that some white supremacists from time to time will argue against the out of Africa the thesis of human origins, you know, the real diehard die racists who don't want to acknowledge any connection to an African past will will say that they evolved from Neanderthals. Right? I, I think even some Nazis may have had a belief similar to this. So, but Dick's kind of playing with the idea that homo, you know, like Neanderthal replaced our, you know, were replaced by Homo sapiens, and it's an idea that's going to come up again in the stories, especially the Kraken space, which which is uh, his real statement on the relationship between humans and and Neanderthals. So the next test they do is to shoot Chris with ten tubes, all in constant motion and entirely randomized. This test was going to try to disprove once and for all mind reading as the cause of Chris's abilities. But when Anita sees Chris, she's immediately enamored with him. She starts to compare Chris to a god, which is the same thing the younger girl on the farm did. She urges Baines not to kill him, saying that he's not a monster like the others. None of the projectiles will strike Chris, and as the guards attempt to enter the chamber holding Chris, he escapes and runs through the building. Wisdom, uh, which is the the, I think it's the head of the of this um, lab orders the building shield sealed shut, worried that if he escapes, he'll truly be a prototype of the race that will eventually replace humanity. Baines tells Anita that despite how he looks, Chris is an animal. He lacks actually literally the frontal lobe, so he lacks kind of this emotional, co you know, part of the brain. He lacks that cognitive ability. He's less than a man in cognitive ability, even if he's more than a man in these other abilities he has. So his brain is actually all different. Again, Dick's point here is that these mutants are really not human in the way we normally understand them. Anita is still comparing Chris to a golden god. Baines worries that Chris, you know, proves that intelligence has failed and reached its limits. And in a way, this is not an uncommon idea in the 1950s. When you look at where knowledge and intelligence had gotten the world by the 1950s was to the brink of extinction, um, to war, to nuclear war. And if that's the best humanity can do, you know, do we really need that? And I suppose we could say the same kind of thing with um, perhaps like the environment, right? It, you know, what's the point of, of knowledge, of progress, if all it gets us is is ecological devastation and, and more suffering in the future. They finally realize that Chris is able to see into the future. Technically, what he has is a broader present. I, I don't know, it'd be tough to kind of imagine what this is like, but he, he experiences the future as the present. So he, there's really no temporality. And the thesis here is that evolution will slowly expand this ability until in the future there's no temporality at all. People live in all times at once. Of course, Chris is just the beginning of this process by uh, having a slightly, a slight period of non-temporality. But in the future, there's going to be a, a, a humanity that maybe has no time at all. This will, though, of course, mean the end of progress because there'll be no real struggle for survival or uncertainty about the future. Wisdom in panic demands that Chris is found and killed. So again, wisdom is the head of this, this lab, kind of the boss. Chris evades guards on his way to Anita's home with, with ease. Now, despite her feelings of this understanding of the situation, Anita is unable to kill Chris. Instead, she's overwhelmed with sexual desire and sexual feelings and passion. And in a moment of rationality, she orders Chris out of her room. But Chris kisses Anita, and she is easily seduced by this quote-unquote God come down to earth. 
So sometime later, after business, she warns Chris that the government will kill him if he tries to escape. She is frustrated that all he does is run away. She helps Chris escape the lab, and Chris uses her as a human shield when the guards approach. He abandons Anita when he's making his final escape. I guess breaking her heart a little bit. This escape proves that Chris has two abilities. One, precognition, and he's also got this ability to manipulate the sexual desire of women. Combined, these abilities will make the survival of Chris and his offspring inevitable. Because essentially, they, they can't be captured, they can't be caught and killed. Because they can always, you know, use their precognitive abilities to escape. But also, and perhaps more dangerously, they can impregnate women pretty much at will. So that's the story. Okay, so what's our analysis? Well, this story begins with a situation very similar to the story of The Crawlers, which I, I don't think we've looked at it. It's, it's, it was published around this time, though. Yeah, The Crawlers was 1954 um, as well, so we'll get to that shortly. But we have um, the same idea that the human, or the government's tracking down all these post-humans and trying to wipe them out because they're seen as a threat to humanity in a way. But this is actually a more profound argument about the nature and evolution of, of evolution and post-humanism. Now, like in The Crawlers, we're given a post-war environment where mutants are running throughout the population. Unable to coexist with them, the government works to purify the human race of these elements these these we do we want to say progressive elements perhaps maybe you know but dick even as his notes say he he th really does think these are dangerous they're not good so he's kind of on the side of government despite all the imagery we get of this government kind of rounding up people and and killing them in the end the, the government's proven right here right that the you know we can't have these you know and, and then this future we're presented the world's going to be full of these golden men eventually and i mean there's all there's this kind of sexual politics to this as well where one of his powers is essentially to rape women and that's kind of a disturbing thought now the golden man is is feels like a very honest perspective on this government mutant relationship Instead of simply hiding them away on the island, the government here actively murders these mutants. There's no euphemism here except in what they maybe give to the Johnson family. But everyone knows that it's the government's policy to, to kill these mutants. It's not a big secret. And the government is honest about why they have to do this, because they fear that these mutant strands will become homo superior. Most of these mutants are your typical quote-unquote freaks. you got like the eight-breasted woman. But you do have a very small group of these that are much more insidious, creating these alternative communities, as in the crawlers, or having unstoppable powers like Chris in the Golden Man. Now, as I already suggested, Dick gives us a close analysis of this story in his comments, and this was prepared for a short story collection that this work appeared in. Um, this is one of those works that was reprinted during his life uh, in one of these anthologies. Dick was consciously bucking a trend at the time to see mutants as benevolent and in charge. In this way, most mutants, uh, so they were not superheroes, super, even though they do have superpowers. Chris has a superpowers, but he's not presented as a super superhero. He's not the guy, he's not the leader, he's not the all-American Superman or something. They're not benevolent, not in charge. Most mutants at the, you know, that he was writing against, most mutant stories he was writing against, presented mutants as technocrats, as aliens, 
as people who can guide humanity, right? Even in childhood's end, you have this idea that, that humanity needs to break free of its traps and it needs some kind of superior force to do that, right? So Arthur C. Clarke's story, Childhood's End, is maybe the best example of that from this period of time. Now, I think this comes probably from a belief in evolution as progress over time. Dick did fall into this teleological evolution often enough, and I've talk and talked a lot about his frontier ideas, which sort of has this idea of, of progress over time. And But for him, it's a more geographical need for a frontier. But still, you're going to have progress. But in The Golden Man, he's being a true Darwinian, showing that what matters is adaptability to the environment, not progress. Right? Natural selection is not in any way about progress. It, you know, it, Complexity or less complexity doesn't even enter into it unless it's an advantage in a certain environment. Right? And a bigger brain served humanity as it evolved, but there's no reason necessarily that it will serve us in the future. Chris is a throwback in many ways. He can't speak. He has little connection to human humans. He doesn't have little connection even to his family. He lives in the woods. Socially and intellectually, he may not even be at the level of like Lucy. Orthoprothesis Africanus, right? That one of those early hominids. Yet his precognitive abilities and his irresistibility to women, who almost always see him as a deity, that's how the females always describe him, as a god come down to earth, this makes him perfectly adaptable to, to this world. It's also a promise, it also promises the end of human domination of the planet. So Dick's revision is that the mutants will be bad for us. Maybe not even malevolent, right? They, they, malevolence almost implies that there's a, a moral standing with them, that you know, you're malevolent if you hurt people that you know better than to hurt, I guess. Um, these, the golden man, Chris, doesn't even think in those terms. He's probably not even a moral agent in any way that we understand it. They might be marginalized and fear as outsiders, but that's almost necessary as the way the story is written. Dick wrote, quote, my theory as to why people took this view, quote, the view that mutants is good, is I think that people secretly imagine themselves early manifestations of these kindly, wise, super intelligent ubermensks who would guide the stupid, i.e. the rest of us, to the promised land, end quote. Now, people who maybe waste money on psychics or people who claim to talk to the dead, you know, is maybe it's, it's this belief that we want to have that these powers are, are possible in, in the environment. And maybe that if we're lucky, we can, have, we can grasp it and, and touch it and, and understand it. We, we somehow don't want to accept that we're just homo sapiens, right? We want homo superiors among us, at least, if, if not to be one of them ourselves. Now... In, in reality, if psychics or people who talk to the dead or you know, precogs or whatever really existed, they would be potential rulers. I mean, there's no, nothing would keep them from power, right? And that's his lesson in the world Jones made. Now, the question we could ask here is if someone really did have psychic powers, if someone really was a mutant and could control the future, know the future, why would they give people readings for 20 bucks an hour? You know, they'd be working in a government agency somewhere, right? I suppose conspiracy theorists will say, aha, you're, you're on to it. Now, the relationship between the pre-humans and hominids and humans will come up again and again in Dick's fiction. Um, it's Post-humanism needs to be questioned and even feared, perhaps, for the same reason that Neanderthal had good reasons to fear the rise of Homo sapiens. So we'll, we'll come back to this in 
the crack in space and and maybe over the course of the next few months we're able to we'll be able to come to kind of a, a thesis a general theory of dick's posthuman the same way we can start to come to a general theory about robotics and in his his re revision if i will if you will of, of asimov and his laws of robotics now this is one of dick's earliest explorations of the precog idea it might even be the first um, in the world Jones made we, we was probably the best and most fully developed early exploration of the of precognition. There it's presented also as a dangerous force. In a few later stories, the precogs become a little bit more banal, to be honest. Uh, like in the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eltridge, the precogs work in basically a corporation trying to guess what the next fashion is. So there's something almost a little bit more banal about them. And these earlier stories to precogs are a little more threatening and dangerous. In the world that Jones made, the precog uses his ability to see one year in the future and eventually overthrow the government and become a dictator. But other precogs are presented as useful, maybe, taking jobs for corporations or working for the state in various capacities. I think he's at some point, I don't know why he does this, but he seems to back away from this position that precogs are necessarily unhuman and dangerous. And maybe he gives them back some of their humanity that he takes away from them in these early stories. But I'm not sure that's a good shift. I, I, I'd somehow like thinking about the post-human the way the stories like the Golden Man do, right? As this danger to, to humanism, right? And I, I, I wonder if Dick wants to almost defend humanism in a way. And or defend humanism from science fiction writers who are ready to throw humanity out, to see humanity as fallen and ruined. I'm not going to say too much more about this story, um, but I do want to add here that perhaps things like the bureaucracy, something Dick really didn't like, is, is itself of post-humanism. This is not a new idea. It's not something that Dick invented, or certainly it's not something that I invented, but... The idea that somehow institutions not only devalue us, because what becomes more important is the institution itself, right? This is, of course, uh, David Simon's whole thesis for, for much of his career, is that the institution devalues the individual. But more than that, it makes us do things we didn't normally do, right? Like be cruel and indifferent to people because that's what the rules say. I talk about this a little bit in The Hanging Stranger, right? As, as long as everything is by the book, we can do cruel things to people. We can murder the innocent. Um, you know, when you hear these court cases about, you know, these people being executed and evidence is presented that maybe he didn't do it, but the judge says, well, he was convicted lawfully and so he has to be executed. I mean, that's a horrific thing. And no one would make that decision if there were an individual in control. But the minute you put an institution or a kind of a policy or a procedure or a protocol around it, it becomes justifiable and almost necessary for the survival of the system. That itself is a form of posthumanism, you know, not just a biological one, even though this story is more biological. I think we can also look at Dick's bureaucratic critique in the terms of, uh, of, a, of a type of posthumanism. So that does it, I guess, for the Golden Man. I, I actually thought I'd go a little bit longer than this, but I guess this is long enough. Um, Oh, we probably could say a few things about the, the sexual politics of this story. It's certainly part of Dick's effort to make to make us lose our sympathy for Chris, that we find out that it, he, he is a rapist, right? Now, as I said before, he's not really a, a moral agent. So he's not, it's not clear, and it's certainly not presented this way, that his raping of Anita, and, and really what he did is he... he 
seduces her with his mind, right? Or somehow uses his ability to make her love him, right? That's still a, a type of rape. But she's, but he, Chris, should we use he? I'm not even sure we should use he. It probably doesn't see this as, as a moral dilemma, right? Doesn't see it as right or wrong, right? It's just his biological necessity of what he can do, right? So maybe it's, maybe we can't really define it as rape. I don't know. Uh, it's certainly something to think about, and it's something Dick wants us to think about, I think, in this story. Is this an act of sexual violence, or is it, you know, is it just that he does have this ability to attract women to him, and, you know, that's just his power, right? He's just really good looking, I suppose, even though he's got this weird golden skin and everything. To human women, he's irresistible. And that's just, he just has the advantage of any other good looking man. Right. But it seems to go beyond that. It seems it's almost a psychic kind of domination that he's involved with. But we don't get enough. It's just on a, it's a surface thing. And you get the feeling that he could almost have written a whole novel about all these issues uh, revealed in The Golden Man. Um, but anyways, I'm going to leave it at that. I, I do want to hear your feedback on, on these issues on how Dick presents the posthuman. Is the posthuman a threat? You know, is there, I mean, is this rape? What? Chris does to Anita and, and apparently to other women as well? Uh, or is it just he's got a genetic advantage that he's taken advantage of and, you know, we, you know, it is what it is. Is, you know, what does this have to say about, what does he have to say here about Nietzsche? About, he uses the word Ubermensch, which is a Nietzschean concept in his, his introduction to the book. Um, certainly that's in this background too, this idea that there's a class of people who are going to be transcend the ethical, transcend the moral. And therefore, they're able to, you know, going to be move humanity forward, or at least move their, you know, themselves forward, move their individual desires to the forefront because they can transcend the ethical. You know, is that what this is about? Is it just uh, a th his kind of commentary on Darwinism and adapti adaptability? Anyway, there's a lot to talk about here, so please contribute what you want to um, this discussion. I'll, I'd love to hear it. Well, I'll, I'll see you next time with a with a much lighter story on Beyond the Doorway or Beyond the Door. Get me involved in that he said, she said crowd. I know that ain't nobody perfect. I give props to those who deserve it and believe y'all he's worth it. So here's to the future cause we got through the past. I finally found somebody that could make me laugh. <laughs> you so crazy. I think I want to have your baby. <laughs>